Welcome to the Home Collective Podcast, where we discuss leadership, culture, and revival. Feel free to check out our Thursday night teachings from our gatherings, which you can find on our website at www.homedowntown.org, as well as iTunes under Home Downtown. Thank you for joining us. Cool. Well, uh, I wanted to introduce Jeremy Reeves uh, this evening. He's a pastor, a creative. Um, he's a leader in our community. He's well-known, not only in the religious sphere, but also in the creative sphere. And so it's a big honor to have him. Can we give him a round of applause as he begins? I don't think I'm well-known, Jordan, but I appreciate that. Don't go ask people like, yeah, this guy named Jeremy came and spoke, and he's really well-known. You guys have heard of him, right? And they'd be like, we don't know who you're talking about. I want to start like this. Uh, maybe just quickly um, some logistical stuff. We're going to have, um, there's three sections tonight, a ritual and two texts that we'll look at from the scripture. And what we're talking about is leadership in the way of Jesus, specifically as it relates to this dynamic of the church as an institution and the church as a place full of persons, individual people. And how do those things work together? Maybe more, how do those things not work together? But I want to start with a ritual. Um, it's a ritual, if you've been in the church, um, I'm, and I'll ask you all to help me with it. Are you, are you willing to help me with it? Um, if you've been in the church, you've, you've likely done this. Maybe your church did it once a year. Maybe your church did it. Can you take those and just pass them around? Um, maybe your church did it um, every week. Um, but it's a ritual that's been a ritual of the church from the very beginning. And it goes like this. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Listen to that context. On the night when Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So just pass this around, and there's enough to take a big chunk. I grew up in a tradition where you got a tiny little wafer, and it always felt like not enough, uh, like it was the Lord's snack instead of the Lord's supper. So take that and pass it around. Yeah, you can touch it. I'm sure you all washed your hands. Um, no. So take a, take a big chunk. Take a chunk. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, if you're worried, this, this is grape juice. I didn't make it at home. Uh, I just appreciate aesthetics. I tried to bring glasses, but all I had were these little plastic cups that are very spill-prone because they're very tall and skinny. Um, so just be careful. Um, so it's grape juice from um, a reputable grape juice maker. So, um, so I'm just going to pass it around. and you get, There's two of them, so pour, pour enough. Pour more than a little thimble worth. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as, as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a community meal that does this proclamation proclamation of the death of Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine, go ahead and eat it. It's like a family meal. Um, somebody once said, um, if you were at Thanksgiving with your family and you're passing the food around and you've got the turkey and the gravy and mashed potatoes and green beans, and as soon as the food gets on your plate, you look down and you don't talk to anybody, nobody would think you're pious. They'd think you're rude. So please talk with your mouth full. Uh, past the bread and the grape juice. This is, is a family meal that we're eating together. Now, I want you to imagine that you're there. I want you to imagine that you're there in that upper room, you and 11 others and Jesus, and he's 
passing this bread to you, and he's passing what was wine, but I didn't want to get anybody in trouble, so we're doing grape juice tonight. You're welcome. And you're... Oh, yeah, there's more. Look at this. Uh, now, that is the bottle of the stuff that I made, so just uh, be careful with that. I want you to imagine that you're, you're sitting there with 11 other disciples and with Jesus, and he's, he's instituting, he's inviting you to this meal together. And you recognize in some small way, as much as you can, given the story that you've lived through over the last three years, you're recognizing as much as you can that you're a part of a story that will change everything. You're sitting at a table, and you're a part of a story that will change everything. That you're going to be a leader in this story that even if the world doesn't know it yet, everybody's been waiting for this story to begin unfolding. The whole world has been waiting and God has been promising this for a thousand years and you're a part of that, you're a leader in it. Some of your fellow disciples recently, maybe it was you, asked Jesus, uh, they approached him off to the side and they said, when you come into your kingdom, one gospel writer has, has them asking it and one gospel writer tells maybe more of the story and it's their mom asking for them. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left. We want to be in positions of power and we want to be in control. We want to be in a position of authority. If we're going to be leaders, we want to be the leaders among leaders. Can you grant that to us? There was at that time already among the disciples a look ahead to the future of when the kingdom of Jesus is realized and they were looking ahead to the rights and the privileges and the authorities they were going to get when Jesus finally ushered his kingdom in. What sort, of, what sort of special allowances of leadership is this position going to afford me when Jesus finally ushers in his kingdom? And now you're here sitting at this table in this last moment, this last moment before Jesus is going to go and be arrested, be betrayed and be arrested and go and die. And, and he keeps telling you that he's going to do that so you know that something is coming and this is the last moment you're going to have with him. And you know it's the last moment that he's going to be there with you to give you the resources and the knowledge and the special insight it's going to take to be a leader in his kingdom a leader in this organization, in this movement that he's starting. And, and he, starts, he starts to open his mouth. And he's going to grant you this insider knowledge of what it's going to take to be a leader in this organization. And he sits you down at his table and he breaks bread. And he invites you to a meal with him. Instead of giving you some leadership principles, he gives you himself. On the night that you expected that Jesus was going to grant you the lever of authority and leadership. Instead of giving you that, he gives you himself. This is my body for you. This is my blood poured out for you. How does this shape the way we think about leadership in Jesus' church? If this is the last moment that Jesus is going to be with his disciples before he's betrayed and crucified, and he, he's going to give them everything that they need to be leaders in his organization, in this blossoming, blossoming movement. What does this tell us? That he sits them down to a meal, breaks bread, and gives himself to them. I think first what it does is it suggests that leaders in Jesus' church, the first thing, the most central thing about leaders in Jesus' church the most important thing about people who are going to lead in this organization, in this family, in this community, the central thing about leaders in this community is that they receive from Jesus. That's the most central thing. The first thing is that we're recipients. That those 12 disciples, 11 after Judas left, that these disciples in this room, that leaders in this church and every church across the city and across the country and around the world come to Jesus with our hands open ready to receive. We know that we come to his table offering nothing. A leader is not first some, somebody that has something to offer. A leader in Jesus' church is first somebody who recognizes they have nothing to offer. You will have something to offer. If you are a leader in Jesus' church, you are a human being created in the image of God, you will have something to offer. The first step is to sit down at his table recognizing I have nothing to offer until he fills me, until he offers me himself. Leaders in Jesus' church are first people who receive from Jesus. We are guests at his table, invited to sit down with him. 
coming with empty hands ready to be filled. Second, what I, what I want to draw out is that leadership gets defined. Whatever we thought about leadership before this moment, before sitting down at Jesus' table, whatever we thought, whatever the disciples thought, whatever the world, the rest of the world thought was, was real leadership, it gets redefined by Jesus in this moment. Whatever we thought it was, Jesus redefines it. And it gets defined not by an exercise of power, by being in charge, by telling people what to do. It gets defined by the self-giving of Jesus. Leadership gets reconfigured by Jesus. And so this supper is an invitation. It is, Jesus is giving himself to his disciples and to you through them, to the whole church, um, all the leaders of the church around the world and through time and to every member of the church through, through time and around the world. It is that but it's also an invitation to lead in that way. What does it look like for me to be a self-giver? What does it look like for me to lead in the way of Jesus? Leading in the church is, um, the way Peter puts it, there's this really interesting language when Peter is uh, calling the church to, which he's writing, um, to, to, um, to live with each other and to lead in the way of Jesus, and he says to submit to one another. The, the, the Greek language there means to live beneath each other. Leadership in Jesus' ter- church is not top-down. It's from the bottom. Leading in Jesus' church is a living beneath, living beneath the people that you lead. Um, it's probably important for me to say at this point um, a, bit, a little bit of my story um, because it's, uh, what I want to say is that my vision of the institution of the church is tainted. I want to be honest. Uh, my vision of the institution of the church is tainted. Um, so I've worked, I'm 40 years old. Um, I've worked in the church since I was 24. I started as uh, like an office manager in a church in Central Texas. Um, I became a ministry operations director, which means I like helped people budget, and, and I'm terrible at all of that. Administrative stuff is not my forte, and so I spent the first seven years of working in the church doing stuff that I, that I was very bad at, uh, and it showed. Um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain how much of the detail to go into. If you want more details, ask me about it. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, uh, my job ended in 2009, when there was this high-level leadership dysfunction, um, which maybe feels redundant, saying that a church has high-level <laughs> leadership dysfunction, like that's generally the definition of a church, that it's got high-level high level leadership dysfunction. Um, but my job was a sort of casualty of that leadership dysfunction. The, the leaders couldn't fire the pastor, and I was the only other staff member, and so I was fired. Uh, it was um, three weeks before Christmas, three weeks after our third child was born. Um, One of the leaders, uh, this was relayed to me later, one of the leaders, um, uh, the only one who objected to the the way the whole thing unfolded, said uh, to the rest of the leaders in a a closed meeting where they were deciding to end my job, um, said, guys, like, um, we can't, you can't fire Jeremy three weeks before Christmas. And one of the guys said, um, well, there's no good time to fire somebody. And, and the one guy who was on my side said, yeah, but there are worse times. There are worse times to fire someone. Three weeks before Christmas, three weeks after his third child was born. Um, but we, we, six months later, moved to St. Louis to go to grad school for me to get my theology degree, um, which I finished in 2013, and then moved here to be an assistant pastor at a church here. And um, a very similar thing happened, which... Uh, the, the value uh, um, in my heart uh, of self-awareness, of, this, of uh, uh, a deep sense of trying to know yourself, suggests that maybe I should look at these two instances of being fired from churches and go, maybe I'm not supposed to be a pastor. Maybe this is a signal. Like if I were, if I were smarter, I would get it. Um, uh, I have a... A 25-year relationship with a voice of self-doubt in my own head um, about whether or not I belong uh, in a role like this or really any role, this constant voice um, that 
uh, starts off by asking, this is not in my notes, starts off by asking, um, do you really feel like you're equipped for this? Like, this situation that you're going into, like this podcast you're going to speak at, or um, uh, planting a church, or doing this pastoral counseling situation. Like, maybe somebody else will be better. And then it slowly becomes something more like accusatory. Like, you shouldn't be here. Uh, you're going to fail, and you're going to fail in front of people, and everybody's going to notice. And t- two instances of being fired, the second one was here. Uh, I worked at that church for three years, um, and I was, uh, fired is not the right word, I was asked to resign with no other option. So um, somebody said, I got resigned from that church, uh, which is true. Um, uh, I was lied about um, in order for my job to end. Uh, and um, I spent almost 20 years on the road toward ordination in this denomination that I, was, that I became a pastor in. Um, I spent three and a half years going to school to gain that uh, status. You have to take a series of tests, uh, written and oral exams, uh, in front of a number of different committees in order to become a pastor in the denomination. I was on that road for... Uh, well, since I was 24 and started working at that church in Texas and uh, was ordained and then two years later was um, asked to leave from that church, asked to resign, uh, and then um, tried to join with another denomination and the denomination from which I left sent a letter erroneously to that denomination suggesting that I was under some kind of disciplinary investigation, which I wasn't. And so they rescinded their vote to receive me as a pastor. And so my ordination went from... Ordination in that context means the church has recognized that Jesus has called you as a pastor. In this denomination, it's very formal. It's a very formalized institutional process. So my ordination went from there uh, and sort of went through the air, hanging on nowhere, and went to this other denomination and then sort of bounced off and stopped in the middle. And when you grow up in a world where... It's the church, it's your specific institutional body that says, we recognize you as our pastor and receive you as that. And they stop saying that. It's, it's that voice of self-doubt gets really loud, gets really turned up. And so I, I want you to know um, that I have a knee-jerk, impulsive, negative reaction to anything that feels institutional. Uh, for better or worse, for good reasons and for bad reasons. Um, and so a lot of my um, material tonight, a lot of the conversation we'll have, um, is, it, I, it is admittedly tainted and swung to one side. I want to be honest about that. So I would love for you to ask questions about it as you hear me talking about it. Um, feel free to say, hey, is this maybe your impulsive knee-jerk re- reaction or is this really something that you think is... Is, is the appropriate way to think about being a leader in the church of Jesus. But I want to ask you, I want to ask you a question, um, and I'd love to hear your responses. Um, as, you, as you imagine yourself sitting in the upper room with Jesus, and you've heard the story of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, asking if they can sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, and you were, you were mad at them because you wanted to ask the same thing, and they, did, they kind of beat you to the punch. And he doesn't give you, he doesn't pass a mantle to you in that last night. He doesn't give you the thing that you're expecting, some kind of insight into being a leader in, in this growing movement. But he gives you himself in the form of bread and wine. What are you thinking? How does that affect the way now you think about being a leader of the people that Jesus has given to you and brought into contact with you? What happens in your head and in your heart when you hear that? It's not a rhetorical question. I know normally questions from a pulpit are rhetorical, but this one's not. I think initially, just like straight out of the flesh, I think a normal human thought would be like, well, that's not a leadership position, or like how am I supposed to be in authority if I'm not seen or if you're not giving me a literal position of authority. So I think right off the bat, it's kind of confusing to somebody who maybe doesn't understand the whole picture and the whole, like, um, the whole goal that Jesus has in general. Um, 
and then from there on you just have to take more time to understand what Jesus is actually about and then be like oh maybe I'm wrong or maybe there is actually more to a leadership position under Jesus than I think there is and it's actually a lot better mm. his way than it is my way yeah so that's just what goes no that's mind. good you said um how can I be a leader if I'm not seen I love that uh, well I love it and I hate it I, I love because you, um, you recognize there's this draw, right? There's this gravity in being a leader that says, I, I want people to see me like that. I want them to see me as being up front and having something to offer and, and having some study of the Bible and having something to say about it. Um, what happens if, you, if you're a leader and you're not seen? Like, what if you don't get that? Anybody can answer. I'm not putting you on the spot. You want the microphone? You want to say that again? <laughs> I feel like you have to humble yourself. And really, my first thought was like, in my head, I'd be angry mm. and hurt and mm. confused. Mm -hmm. But in my heart, I would realize that this is bigger than me. Mm. And I don't have to be seen mm. for Christ to see me. Mm -hmm. So if my work is behind the curtain, mm -hmm. then I need to realize that it's coming from him. And mm. it's not anything that a person or people crew people group can give me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so, good. Yeah, yeah well, that's great. Other thoughts, other things that go on in your head or your heart when you are expecting some kind of special insight, but you get Jesus instead? I think for me, um, growing up, I never had like huge aspirations, mm -hmm. um, especially not being a leader like that was never natural for me. And I think something that appeals to me about Jesus um, and that would have been refreshing for me would be him giving me himself and not expecting mm. something of me, mm -hmm. but that he's first relational and mm -hmm. then second, he calls you to his cause and to what yeah. he's doing. So, of course, that side of me, the emotional female side, would be like, yes, I love this. And then, yeah. of course, I'm sure... I think my female side likes that, too. I don't know if <laughs> yes. I'd get to have one of those, but <laughs> whatever side of it is. <laughs> yes, or just your human side of we were made for love and for relationship. Yeah. And so yeah. that would appeal to like your most basic desire and need to be yeah. in relationship with the one who made you. But yeah. I'm sure on the other side of things, I'd be like, what, how, how does this relate to what you're calling us to do? Yep. But at the same time, if they had been listening to what he had been saying all along, and we always kind of, I feel like I do. I'm like, how do they not see it? Mm -hmm. I feel like there was maybe some intentional blinding of their eyes a mm. little bit. Either mm. that or it just we're just human and we don't yeah. get it. But I feel like he was setting them up because he said to wait until um, he would meet them mm. after he had risen mm -hmm. and told them the things that had to take place. Mm -hmm. And then he would kind of, in a sense, commission them um, after he... Yeah, yeah I, I think spirit. of the you know story... I mean? Yep. I think of the story where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and Peter says, you can never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you can have no part of me. And I think it's, it's easy to read those moments as exceptions to, to, the, to the otherwise institutional rule that leaders are leading from the top. Like Jesus is this exception and he washes feet in this moment to show that he's really kind and gracious, but he otherwise leads from the top. But what Jesus is suggesting is that Peter can't have a part of this because that's the shape of the story. The shape of the story is that leaders lead from the bottom, that what leaders do is serve people and give themselves for their people. That's not an exception, but it is actually the way it works. That's the way the community works. It's the way the family of Jesus works. I want to go on to the next um, onto the, the first of our text, unless somebody has something really pressing, and, and please feel free to interrupt me if you do. Yeah, Jordan has something really pressing. Something this really, better be good. Something really pressing that I thought of was uh, my brother it works at a church in Mexico, and uh, he is fluent in Spanish now. His girlfriend doesn't even really speak English, and he went um, from like working at Walmart, being addicted to Minecraft, and then just moved to Mexico, and now he's like, leading teams and he's a youth pastor there in like a village and stuff and I was like wow this is really cool and mm -hmm. one of the things that really struck me the most about his time there and his position is that um, they plant they, they uh, plant churches everywhere in Mexico like in tons of villages 
And uh, he is taught, everyone on staff is taught that if you have a, like a time or you have a service and nobody shows up, you're required to still preach the message. Mm. And there's been pastors that have preached to like five, six messages to empty rooms. Mm-hmm. And that spoke to me a lot mm. as if like, would I still be the same person or mm. speak the same message if no one was in the room? Because mm. the, the original question I believe was, would I, uh, how can I lead people if there's no one there or how can I lead no one but mm. still be a leader? Mm-hmm. And that hit me right when you said that, just that, that idea of what I preach if no one was there to listen and how important is that mm-hmm. thought? No, that's really good. Uh, and it also, Jordan and I were talking before we started about preaching, and uh, some famous preacher said your first 200 sermons are terrible, so if you could preach all those to an empty room, it's perfect. Like, nobody has to hear the terrible ones. Um, no, but I think it, it also suggests that um, it invites you into this rhythm, a rhythm of trust, um, that God is at work, and that Jesus is working, that his word actually does something, that uh, as we sit around this m- now metaphorical table, we don't have a table in front of us, but as we sit around this table and eat this really simple meal, it, that's actually the thing that changes the world. Uh, that's the thing that actually, that, the, that all of our hearts are longing for, is this deep connection uh, to each other and to the one who made us, uh, is the deep connection to the, the shape of the story that Jesus is unfolding. And that kind of practice invites us into that rhythm. Um, <clears throat> I was going to say, like, I had a discussion with uh, a friend of mine uh, was in Kansas about, like, leadership and stuff like that. But um, so I asked him an honest question, like, because for me, like, I see that, like, that's a struggle. Like, when you're in leadership, like, you, you it's kind of like a limelight thing. Like, all eyes are on you and mm-hmm. you, you're kind of, like, performing mm-hmm. for everybody and you mm-hmm. want to get people to like you. Yep. Um, <laughs> one thing he was telling me is like, most people don't see the sacrifice that a lot of leaders make mm. behind closed doors mm-hmm. and what they have to go through. Mm-hmm. And he's like, dude, we're like literally like laboring, like, like with like juggling with our families, like with our lives, like on stage, yeah. like off stage, all this stuff that goes behind the scenes. Yep. Everybody wants to be that, but like, they don't want necessarily sacrifice. So like, actually, yeah, like, you know, put in the work to do that. But they, yeah. it's like it's almost like. It's like this illusion, like, oh, it's like, it must be easy to be up there on stage mm-hmm. and, like, you know, reach out to people. But, like, there's so much stuff going on that people don't see. Yeah. So. No, that's, I think that's a great point. And I think that's why it's important for us as we're conceiving of ourselves as leaders in the church and as we're conceptualizing leadership generally um, is our first step. And this is not just like a theological platitude. Our first step is that we're recipients that we are empty vessels to be filled by Jesus. I love being in front of people. I'm an ENFJ, that's my Myers-Briggs. I'm an Enneagram 7. So I love being in front of people. Um, the stuff that, like, the administrative stuff that has to happen in the office, like, I'm not sure the last time I did any of that. Like, I don't like doing that stuff. Um, uh, I'd much rather do this part. Uh, why am I saying that? I don't know. I have no idea what my point is. Other than to say I like being here, thank you for having me. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Um, no, I think, it's, I think that, that there are, there are, um, there are sort, the sort of behind-the-scenes sacrifices are, are often going to be different for each of us um, because of the way we're wired, specifically um, the kind of people that Jesus is making us into. Um, that's why I, th- I put a really high value on self-awareness. And I do these, like, personality tests. One of my mentors is a guy who's a, like a specialist in this uh, work temperament thing called the right path. Um, yeah, that's not in my notes either, so I'm going to stop right there. But you can ask me about it, and we'll talk about it later. But it's really, it's, it's this really important piece that I know. Um, the helping professions, therapists, counselors, pastors, um, leaders in the church, people that are that are um, that get seen, people that are called upon to be in front of people. Uh, those professions attract a high level of narcissists. There's a high concentration of narcissism within those kind of professions, and so it's deeply important for me to know. Like I could, I could easily sacrifice my wife and kids to my pastoral career in the name of sacrifice. 
I'm giving myself to the church, honey, so I have to be gone every night. I've got to go and help this family that's struggling in their marriage or go meet with these people that can't pay their bills or whatever. None of those things are bad. Um, they can become bad if I begin to look at myself first as a sacrificer and not as a recipient, right? If I, if, first, if I come to the table and say, first, I'm the one who has something to offer, then, then what I do is I abandon my family and I define myself by the way I help all these people all the time. And if I don't have that deep level of self-awareness that I'm actually drawn to that, I'm drawn to this kind of hero complex, then in the language of sacrifice, I actually am filling myself with all the wrong stuff, right? I'm actually gaining a lot uh, of recognition, of spotlight, of people's eyes, um, and that is a sure, like, that's a direct path to burning yourself out and, and eventually leaving, leaving the church and leaving faith or whatever. Let's go to the story of Zacchaeus. You guys are likely familiar with the story. It's in Luke 19. It goes like this. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he, Jesus, looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for my, I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus is a man out on the edges, out on the fringes of the community, the group of people that are waiting to see Jesus, that have gathered in the middle of the town, waiting for Jesus to come through. Zacchaeus is a man on the edge of that. He's a tax collector. He's not a good man. He's described both as a big man and a small man. He's big enough to collect the taxes that people owe, but he's bigger enough to, to collect taxes that they don't owe. He's shaking people down for more money than they're supposed to give. He's a, he's a town bully. He's a big man. He's rich and he's powerful. And the text also describes him as a small man. He's short. He's a little man. He's small in stature, but he's you kind of get a sense that he's small of heart also. He's a curious man. He's out there on the edges because the community won't accept him because of how bad a man he is. And yet he's interested enough in Jesus to press up to the edges of the community, to press right up to the edges to see who this Jesus is. The community kept him out of the center because rightly, maybe, they kept him out because he's a terrible person. But he was drawn enough to Jesus to come to the edges. And Jesus walks into town, into this town whose walls a long time ago fell down, all the way down. Jesus walks into town, and he has the whole crowd waiting for him. He's got fame served to him in this town. He's got a sure path to recognition, to accolades, to a crowd cheering him on. They were there to see him and to hear him and to follow him. They would give him the meaning that human beings want. They would give him some confirmation that he's on the right path because he's gathering a people for this movement that he's creating and that he's starting. Do you, do you feel that pull as a leader? Over there is a group of 40 people that I know love the way I preach or they love the way I lead Bible study or they love the way I pray or they love the insight that I have and those people over there, I know if I go there, I will feel good as an ENFJ and an Enneagram 7. I will get the things that, that the dark parts of my heart really want. I will get those things if I go there. Do you feel that pull to build something, to make something extraordinary, to do something that satisfies all the church planting metrics, to do something that other people would look at and want to copy? Do you feel that pull? I feel it. I feel it because... I want to be seen. 
I feel it because I want some kind of confirmation that I'm doing the right thing. I want some kind of feedback. I love mowing the lawn because in front of me I can see what needs to be done and behind me I can see the effect of my work. I can see that it's working. In church leadership, this is a free tidbit, it's not in my notes, in church leadership you, you, you rarely get that because human beings are more complex than, than your lawn. They're more complex than my lawnmower. So you don't get the feedback. I want the feedback. I want to know that I'm making a difference. That's not bad, by the way, to want to make a difference. That's a deeply in-created impulse. But I want to know that I'm not a failure. I want to convince people, I want to convince myself that I'm making a difference and that I'm not a failure. But Jesus walks into this town and he walks past all of that possibility. He walks right through the middle of the possibility of accolades and of cheers and of a, a certain following. And he goes to a little man, a little bad man in a tree. And he walks up to that tree. He goes to the wrong man in that town. The only one that the story tells us about. He walks past all these people and he picks the one person who would certainly tank his ministry. He picks the one person who would guarantee him all the opposites of what we want. Accolades and cheers and some confirmation that we're doing the right thing. And Jesus calls him down by name. He calls him down by name and Zacchaeus' name means pure or clean. So I want you to imagine that you're in the crowd and you know Zacchaeus because every month he comes around to your house and he knocks on the door and he threatens you with something to give him more money than you owe. And Jesus walks up to that man, and you hear Jesus say, hey, clean man. Hey, man of purity, come down. Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. He calls him something that he isn't. Zacchaeus is not pure. He's not clean. He's a bad person. He's not trustworthy. He defrauds people, and he's a bully, and Jesus calls him clean. Jesus calls him by name, uh, which means something very simple and at the same time really profoundly important. Jesus calls him by name because he knew his name. Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name because he knew his name. Jesus calls him by name because he knew his name, and he used it in public. Imagine you're the crowd. What do you think when Jesus knows that guy's name? Jesus who's likely never met Zacchaeus. What are you thinking? Jesus is in some way associated with him. They must be friends already. Jesus is in league with the bad man. Not only is that man bad, not only is he shaped people, but maybe Jesus is supporting him. How does he know his name already? Jesus risks everything that we want all of the impulses of leadership, all of the negative impulses of leadership, Jesus resists those. He, he discards them. He turns them upside down. And that one word that he says, Zacchaeus, when he calls Zacchaeus by name. I'm drawn to uh, the, the, the crowd of 40 or 50 or 100 people because I want to know that they know my name. I want to know that they'll remember my name. And, and what if it's enough that Jesus knows my name? What is it if it's enough that Jesus calls me by name? I don't need people to remember my name because Jesus does. And he calls me by it. He calls me by my name because he knows it. Jesus was willing in public, in full view of the crowds, to associate himself with the wrong kind of person, the very person who would derail his mission if his mission were centrally to create a blossoming institution. Jesus picks the wrong person if that's his mission. And then he does something uh, that makes it worse. Um, Jesus has a, a knack for making things worse. Is that okay to say? <laughs> He does something that the crowds disagree with even more. Jesus calls Zacchaeus down from the tree and says, I must stay at your house today. And the crowd responds like you heard it in the story. He's going to stay at the house of a sinner. Like he's not the kind of person that we thought he was. Jesus is not the kind of person that we were expecting. We were expecting somebody to come in and heal or like make a fig tree 
go from dead to alive or do something miraculous that we all be wowed by. And he does something that we're wowed by, but in exactly the wrong direction. He goes to stay at the, at the little bad man's house. Uh, the, the, the biblical story puts a really high premium on hospitality for church leaders. And hospitality is normally defined as you, as a leader, inviting people into your house, inviting them into your space, feeding them dinner, making them feel warm and welcome and befriended. And that's true and that's good and it's right and, and we should do that. But Jesus' his practice of hospitality in this situation is to invite himself into Zacchaeus' house. I want you to imagine that you're Zacchaeus. You're the wrong man. You're the little bad man in Jericho, and you know it, and you know that everybody else knows it. I want you to imagine that. How likely are you to go over to someone else's house other than to take their money? How likely are you to go over to somebody else's territory, somewhere where they're in charge, where they've got the power, they know all the hiding places, and they can sneak up on you? How likely are you to go to their house? Not likely at all. Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus' home because he's inviting himself into Zacchaeus' space and into Zacchaeus' story in a way that's safe for him, in a way that allows this man on the fringes to not be endangered by being in the middle, being invited into what would be enemy territory. Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus' story, into Zacchaeus' space. What would it look like as church leaders if we saw hospitality both as inviting people into our space, but as we look out to the fringes of the church and beyond it, the people that maybe they're interested in Jesus, but they're too afraid for good reasons and for bad to come into the middle of the community. What would it look like for me to give up my space, give up my safe home where I, I know where the bathroom is and I know where the kitchen is and I don't have to ask any questions. What would it look like for me to give that up and, and actually risk myself to say, can I come into your space? What's the risk? They could say no. Zacchaeus could say no. The people out on the edges of the church and beyond the edges could say no to our, to, to our inviting ourselves into their space. But church leaders give themselves. After we receive from Jesus, we give ourselves. We give ourselves in this situation we give ourselves for people on the edges. As you hear the story of Zacchaeus, what is it that you see? What is it that you hear as we attend to the details and imagine ourselves as the crowd or as Zacchaeus? What sort of things rise to the surface that might upturn our sense of what it means to be a leader? Maybe some of the definitions, some of the impulses that we've had. That's, again, not a rhetorical question. It's a real question. What sort of senses rise to the surface? Um, well, the main thing about this is that um, no matter what you've done, Jesus wants to come into your home. And so that was really awesome because yeah. he doesn't just want to go into his house, but his heart as well. Yeah. So that was cool. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's like um, somebody once said, uh, a commentator, I don't remember who it was. I should, I should remember these things because I want to give credit where credit is due. But they said in one way you could... Um, it's not wrong to say that Jesus was crucified for the way that he ate. Because he ate with all the wrong people. Right? He ate with the people that nobody was supposed to eat with. And that was the constant criticism of the, of the institutional leaders. You can't eat with those people because, what? Fill in the blank. Whatever. They're the wrong people. We don't eat with them. Th those people are not welcome into polite society, and polite society does not go into their houses. And Jesus goes, oh, where, where's the door? Let me, that's where I'm headed, right? That's where I go. Um, I go to the people who have nothing to offer to me and, in fact, can ruin things. Zacchaeus could ruin Jesus' ministry and did in that town because everybody goes, he's clearly not the Messiah we thought he was because look what he's doing. When Jesus allows the prostitute to wash his feet with her tears, Simon the Pharisee says, if he were a prophet, he'd know who and what sort of woman that was washing his feet. So he must not be a prophet. Do you see how Jesus is derailing any possibility of growing this, this institution based on some kind of church planting metric of having a certain number of people in a certain number of time, right? Jesus, he discards all of that on purpose. 
I'll say it again, not as the exception, but as the rule for the way this kind of community works. This is the shape of the story. Those are the people that Jesus goes after. Why? Why are they the people? I think if we're honest, those are the people that Jesus goes after because that's the only kind of people there are. The people who think they're in the middle of the community, the people who think I've got it together enough for Jesus to want to hang out with me, the people who come to church thinking, I don't really need to hear any of this because I've kind of got everything like my ducks in a row. Like, we're wrong. When, we're, when we say those things, we're wrong. We're all out on the fringes. And Zacchaeus will remain a prop in a story of our own goodness until I'm, I allow myself to hear Jesus call me Zacchaeus. Can I allow him to say that? Do I allow him to say my name? And call me down from my tree. And will I come down? Will I come down? You had the mic. I'm sorry. Oh, no. I, I told you, I love being in front of people, and I will talk your ears off. I, I completely forgot what I was going to say. I ruined it. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you were, saying, you were talking about leaders and, like, what, what is different in, like, what we take a leader is and what Jesus is saying. Yeah. And I think, like, in the world, we think of, like, somebody that's, like, fiercely ambitious, the strongest person, the toughest person, who's willing to sacrifice everything around them to do what it takes, and then Jesus doesn't want that. Yeah. The complete opposite. Yeah. You just got to show up, and it's, I guess, who has the biggest service mark? Yeah. That's what he wants, but that's not what he wants. Yeah, that's right. And maybe one way to say it is, when we're talking about this definition of leadership in the church, what we're talking about is an outline of being a true human. Uh, We're not talking about this hierarchy where leaders are expected to be this and people who are not leaders are expected to be this. Like leaders are expected to, right, we're supposed to be underneath, living our lives underneath. But we're embodying what it means to be a human being, what it means to love our neighbor. Uh, what leaders are invited to do is embody the story of Jesus because what it, what it says is this is, the, this is the possibility of true humanity, um, to be this kind of person, to be a self-giving person. Did you have, oh, are you sure? Anything pressing? Okay. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, so let me go on to the final text. It's the man at the pool of Bethesda, John 5. We talked about this the other day, Jordan, you and I did, and we were both like, what a weird, what a weird story. You got time for this? Great. It is a weird story. So this is in John chapter 5. I'll uh, starting at verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids. What a horrible word for people. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been there, an invalid, for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. That's the weird part of the story. There's some kind of magical healing waters. We don't know. Nobody does. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Then the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Do you want to be healed? I want you to put yourself there. You're laying on your mat next to the pool. There's five covered walkways. There's a bunch of other people just like you, broken in some way, blind or paralyzed in some way. All of you called by the story invalids, invalid. Put yourself there on your mat, unable to move. You've been sick for 38 years, which means you've been sick for almost a whole generation. 
you've watched an entire generation go by as you've been lying there unable to move. You're in this sort of strange Darwinian competition because um, what's happening apparently is there's the pool that you're all sitting around and occasionally the water starts to move by itself. It starts to waves or splashes or it starts to uh, rumble in some way. And the first one into the water gets healed. You can paint the picture. You can see the scenario. You can also recognize the problem because you're all paralyzed. All of you are paralyzed laying by the pool. Paralyzed from the waist down or from the neck down or, or blind and so you don't know where the pool is. And the, and the way the scenario is set up is that if you can be the first one in the water, you can get healed. It is an entirely hopeless situation. Maybe hundreds of people in this state of hopelessness because the one thing that they need, mobility, they don't have. The one power that they need, they can't muster. And you have no one. You're the man there on the mat. You've been paralyzed for 38 years and you have no one to put you in the water when it begins to tumble and splash. And all you want, genuinely the only thing you want is to be healed. You maybe can't remember what it was like to walk. Maybe you never were able to walk. All you want is to be healed. And so you, you're there at the pool every day. Maybe somebody carries you home. I don't know if you get home or, or maybe you spend the night. You're there at the pool every day and you know your chances are very, very slim because you can't move. Your chances are slim of being able to get into the water. You've been there for 38 years. 38 years unable to move. The one thing that you want is to be healed and a man walks up to you and has the audacity to ask you this question. Do you want to be healed? Of course I want to be healed. Look at me. That's the only thing that I want. It's almost, it almost is an insulting question. Of course I want to be healed. What else would I want? It's insulting for the question. It's insulting for the obviousness of the answer. And maybe you've been laying there for so long that you miss what Jesus is doing. Maybe you've been paralyzed for so long that, you, that, that the question shoots right past you. You've been there for 38 years, completely helpless and immobile and hopeless, and a man walks up to you and asks you what you want. What you want hasn't mattered for 38 years. And that way, it's never mattered. What you want has never mattered. You have never mattered. Maybe hundreds of people lying around that pool together, people walking past, able-bodied people, walking past you every day, maybe for 38 years, and no one will bump you into the water. You matter to no one. And a man walks up to you and asks you what you want. A man walks up to you and says that you matter to him. A man walks up to you and says that you haven't mattered for an entire generation, but you matter to me. Leadership in the way of Jesus is telling people that they matter to you. That they matter to you, and that they matter to the church, and that they matter to Jesus. Even people that have mattered to no one. Maybe especially people who matter to no one. Leadership in the way of Jesus is approaching people and telling them through the questions that you ask and the commitments that you make to them that they matter to you and to the church and to Jesus. And I want to say to you now, in case you don't know, you matter. You, like you're not the, you're not the man by the pool anymore. End, you know, end scene. <laughs> That's over. You as yourself sitting in this room right now you matter. You matter to me, and you matter to the church, and I know you matter to Jordan, and you matter to Jesus. You all matter. You matter before you have anything to offer. You matter before you answer the question, do you want to be healed? Leadership in the way of Jesus is telling people that they matter, but the question that he asks, let's dig into that a little bit. Do you want to be healed? That's the question. There's three horizons in every text. 
three audiences in every text. There's the audience within the text. There's the, the people who are actually involved in the story, the man there by the water, the people who could overhear the question that Jesus asks, the Pharisees who come into the story a little bit later. They're the internal audience. They're the first horizon. The second horizon is the audience who received the text, the people to whom John was writing the story. He, John wrote this down for a specific people, and he gave them the story of the gospel of Jesus according to John. That's the second horizon. John wrote it to and for them. So we have to understand the audience internal to the text, and we have to understand the audience that is receiving the text. And then there's us, the third horizon, the audience who reads the text now. And I, and I want us to... Um, I want us to recognize what that means is that Jesus is asking that question to all of those horizons. When he asks that man, do you want to be healed? And John records it. He records this private conversation. What that does to that question is it extends it beyond the man at the pool. It extends it to the, to the Pharisees that Jesus will encounter later. And it extends it to you and to me. And I want us to attend because we're talking about the dynamic of the church as an institution and the church as a collection of persons, as individuals. We're talking about how those things work or don't work together. I want us to attend to the way the Pharisees respond to Jesus' question and what they see. That they are the religious leaders of the day so that in that way they represent the institution they're tasked with maintaining that community's connection to God. That's their job. And they encounter the broken down man, the man who'd been by the pool for 38 years, sick and immobile. And now they see him walking. Maybe they've seen him every day for 38 years. And now they see him walking. And what do they see? What can they see when they see this man walking? What do they say? What do they say in verse 10? I have it back here. Let me just read it to you. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. I've been paralyzed for 38 years and all you can see is that I'm breaking your rules all you can see is a man breaking the rules. You can't see a healing after 38 years of paralysis. All they can see is someone breaking the rules. Their imaginations have shrunk down so small that they miss a miracle. They miss a miracle because the man is carrying his mat on the wrong day of the week. It's important to say that he's not breaking a biblical rule. He's breaking a well-intentioned religious rule. So the Pharisees created these concentric circles of rules around the law. Our job is to make sure that nobody breaks the law. And, and, if, and if, if the law could be seen as like a cliff that you can fall off, our job is to make sure nobody falls off the cliff. And so we're going we're gonna to build a fence five yards back from the edge of the cliff. So now our job is to make sure nobody crosses the fence. Well, how do we make that easier? I'm going to build another fence 10 yards off the edge of the cliff so then nobody can get even close. What this man did was climb over one fence 35 yards away from the edge of the cliff. He's not breaking a law. He's breaking a well-intentioned religious rule, and the Pharisees' commitment to their institutional rules blinded them to a man made whole by Jesus. And more than that, their preoccupation with institutional rules blinded them to the possibility of a man made whole to Jesus. They can't even see him. They can only see a rule being broken. The man went from being disabled to able-bodied. And the Pharisees proved that their eyes are ongoingly disabled. They cannot see a man made whole by Jesus. So long as the broken man wasn't breaking the institutional rules, they were okay to leave him lying on the mat. They walked by him maybe every day. All they had to do was push him into the water and he'd be healed. For 38 years, they were okay to walk past him because he wasn't breaking the rules. They could only see him when he was breaking the rules because their central concern is rule following. Leadership in the way of Jesus is being able to see people made whole. 
Leadership in the way of Jesus is being able to see people healed. It's being able to take what are well-intentioned religious rules and set them aside so that we can see somebody made whole again. Leadership in the way of Jesus is seeing that the mission of the institution of the church is to ask this question to horizon after horizon. Our job as leaders in the institution of the church is to ask, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And then to do whatever we can to be a part of that story, to be a part of the process of being, people being made whole. Whether it's somebody actually literally being made whole, healed, that happens not very often, that's not a criticism of what God is doing. Don't hear what I'm not saying. He chooses sometimes to heal, literally heal people from being paralyzed for 38 years. He chooses sometimes to not do that. But what's interesting is that the word that Jesus uses when he says, do you want to be healed, is the word for wholeness. Do you want to be made whole? God is constantly making people whole. We are all in that story, a story of being made whole. And the job of the the mission of the institution of the church is to ask that question, to ask that question to people on the fringes and in the middle. Do you want to be made whole? Let's do it. Let's, let's be a part of that story together. That's the question that Jesus is asking us now and inviting us to ask the world, do you want to be made whole? How does that story shape your sense of, of leadership, your sense of your own, your own possibility within the story that Jesus is unfolding right now at, at, at home church and in your work and in your homes? How does that question land as you think about being a leader? Again, not a rhetorical question. Totally okay if the answer is, it doesn't land. I don't know what it does. Probably not, because I make these things up as I go, and so <laughs> I'm not really sure. Um, the mission of the church is to ask the question, do you want to be made whole? Over and over and over again. To the people on the fringes and the people in the center. How does that change? How does that shape the way that you think about being a leader? What comes to mind? I think that's what I asked. I think it's pretty close. We could go back and listen to it. I'd say, uh, to me, it sounds as if we're more meant to see than be seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. I, I like it as a, a tattoo, but give me more. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's as though like our job as leaders isn't necessarily to come up with something of good sustenance for people, mm. but like you said, just to break bread with them, mm-hmm. and see them, mm-hmm. and be with them. Mm-hmm. And like you touched on earlier as well, like inviting ourselves into their life, into our life. Mm-hmm. And I think we put too much of a focus on how good are you on stage, mm-hmm. but I think it's really the truth of it is that how good are you with a single person mm-hmm. or seeing a single individual mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. which is what you're talking about. So. Yeah, maybe one way to say it is that leadership in the church is just entirely ordinary stuff. It's eating meals with people. It's being human with other people, being human with them, being human to them, being human for them. Just to go along with that, I think even if you're somebody who has tried to be in a leadership position mm-hmm. or um, desire to be in a leadership position, yeah. um, I think it can be easy to understand the idea of seeing people as more important than being seen. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also easy to neglect the fact that when you do see others and you do sacrifice your life for others, like you don't leave empty like God sees that and wants to bless you through that. So it's not like you're just emptying yourself out your entire life and just like, oh, I'm doing the right thing. I'm giving my life to others. I'm seeing others. It's like 
I think people don't realize how much they actually do get from that. Totally. Which is super important. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the whole, the whole story of, of giving yourselves to the church, to your neighbors, to your family, is also, at the same time, the same thing as being filled. Um, and it feels in some way uh, contradictory, but that's, that's how, um, I think that's how Jesus works. Yeah. Um, it makes me think, am I whole enough to be asking other people mm. if they want to be whole? Mm -hmm. And to answer my own question, no. Mm -hmm. I came to the table with nothing to offer. Mm -hmm. And that's why he chose me. And it's not that they know my name, but that they know his. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that even if I'm not whole, that doesn't mean that Jesus can't make me and that he can't work through me yeah. to help. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe one of the ways that we, that, um, because again, remember, the, the, the horizons of the text suggest that we're being asked that question even as we're being invited to ask it. And so as, even as we're asking the question, do you want to be whole? We're answering it. I do. Do you? I do. And I'm, I, I'm, I feel like I'm being made whole, and I feel like it's a story of a whole life of being made whole, being put back together by Jesus. And I just want to invite you to do that too. That's good, yeah. I'm done if you're done. Yeah, I run to the end of my, I, I just, just blank after this, so <laughs> they'll know what else to say. Uh, you want to pray? And yeah, I'd love to I'm pray. I'm happy to hang around. Yeah. Uh, people on the podcast won't get the after party stuff, but you know. Should have been too here. Bad. Too bad. That was to the people yeah, listening. Should have been here. It's going to be awkward later. Yeah, it will be. So we'll just pray. You just join me. Kind of awkward now. <laughs> You're sitting up my prayer too. So Sorry, it's yeah. getting worse. Yep. <laughs> uh, Lord, thank you for uh, Jeremy and his heart. God, we just uh, are so thankful that you have one brought us together, um, and two that you're here with us. Uh, God, what a beautiful community that we have, and thank you for bringing Jeremy along to even just push us more um, in the direction of you and towards each other. God, we are just so thankful. Um, I ask that you would bless Jeremy financially, relationally, um, with his family, um, just for the sacrifices he's made, um, as well as just who he is as a man. Um, we're so honored to have him. Lord, would you um, just seal the deal tonight, help us to fulfill that is what you've asked us to do, and God, that is just to be at your table. Help us to not strive. Help us to be ones who love and see, and uh, God, help us to know that we're seen as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Jordan. I'm sure there's more grape juice and bread. I guess help yourselves. Yeah, so